From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. One thing about Armenia that makes it complicated to figure out when you're talking about Armenian food is that there's Western Armenian food and Eastern Armenian food. And um, the divide goes back centuries. But the one thing they always had in common is they would have a toner and we'd be making this bread. It's a very special thing for heritage. So when Armenia formed as a country in the early 1920s, people were still making lavash. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. Remember, there's never been a better time to support independent bookstores than now. Many, like our friends at Omnivore Books in San Francisco, are happy to ship cookbooks to you right now. It's also a perfect time to join an online cookbook club, diving into a new or beloved cookbook with folks around the country. You can find more info on how to support cookbook authors and bookstores, as well as which books are being featured in this month's cookbook clubs, on our Instagram page, at Salt and Spine. Now, you just heard from one of today's guests, Kate Leahy. Kate is one-third of the team behind the cookbook Lavash, the bread that launched 1,000 meals, plus salads, stews, and other recipes from Armenia. Kate, along with chef Ara Zeta and photographer John Lee, have worked to tell the story of Lavash, the, quote, ubiquitous and doable UNESCO-recognized flatbread of Armenia. And in today's show, we're joined by actually all three guests, Kate, Ara, and John, to discuss Armenian cuisine and the importance of Lavash, about their research trips to Armenia, and about how they think about cookbooks. As the authors note, the Republic of Armenia is a small country. It's about the size of Massachusetts geographically, but with about half the population. But the country boasts a diverse landscape, mountainous yet rich in agriculture. With more than 60 recipes, their Lavash cookbook showcases not only the Lavash bread, but also all the dishes you'll want to eat alongside it. In today's show, we're talking with Kate, Ara, and John about the process of how this cookbook came together, why Lavash is so significant in the global history and to Armenian cuisine, and how John and the team ended up in the middle of a tumultuous protest while working on this cookbook. Plus, we're playing a Lavash-themed game with our guests, and we have two featured recipes from the cookbook, Jingalov hats and marinated trout. Also in today's show, Salt and Spine kitchen correspondent Sarah Varney heads into the kitchen to prepare arishta, traditional flour noodles with mushrooms from Lavash. All of that this week on Salt and Spine. So let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, where Kate Leahy, Arizeda, and John Lee joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Hey, how's hey. it going? Hi there. Thank you for joining us on Salt and Spine. We've got the whole crew behind the cookbook here, which is awesome. Yeah, we're happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, of course. So we're here to talk about your book, Lavash, the bread that launched a thousand meals, plus salads, stews, and other recipes from Armenia. Oh, is the yes, the title. All the things. Yes. The longest <laughs> subtitle ever. <laughs> I love it. It's, it's very descriptive. And so I want to start by just talking about sort of maybe first how you all sort of were drawn to this subject matter and then how the three of you sort of came together to work on this book. John, maybe let's start with you, because I understand, is that the right place (laughs) to start? Okay, yeah. Um, So let's start with John. John, you're the photographer behind the book. Right, right. I'm a food photographer, and Mm -hmm. about four years ago, four and a half years ago, uh, I was contacted by an old college uh, buddy of mine who happens to be Armenian-American, who moved back to Armenia, and he wanted to know if I could go teach 
uh, Armenian high school kids food photography. Right. Okay. Thought, oh, all right. You know, <laughs> I mean, I'm a San Francisco Bay Area uh, Chinese American kid. And uh-huh. I know know nothing about about Armenia. I had to. I mean, I had to. Uh, I actually had to Wikipedia Armenia. Like, sure. Once I got that email, um, but I go there. I just you know, out of the blue, summer of 2015, and I fell in love with the country. I fell in love with the food, and I left um, there. I came back to the Bay Area and just you know California in general, looking for that kind of food that I was eating in that country, uh-huh. only to realize that 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 specific kind of food did not exist. Okay. Um, so then at some point, you know, through some more kind of thinking and digging around, realized that it was a very specific type of food that, you know, that it's, it's just, it's, it's unique to that area only. Yeah. But at that point, when I came back from my three weeks in Armenia, um, uh, within a few days afterwards, I jumped, I was, I jumped on an airplane with Kate Leahy, uh, to go work on the Burma Superstar cookbook that she was, sure. she uh, wrote. Yeah, and it was just like kind of a crazy story. So we're literally on a plane that we're going to be on stuck on that plane for hours. Right. And John brings out his computer. He's like, let, let me show you these pictures. And I'm like thinking, well, what else am I going to do? You know, <laughs> right, like, I'm right. either going to sleep or look at John's pictures. Right. So um, a captive audience. So I start looking through these images and I'm thinking, you know, Armenia, I studied Armenia in college. It's kind of a weird story. But it, when I went to UC Davis, I did a... Um, I did my thesis on cookbooks and Armenian American identity. What which are the is odds? Like yeah, really strange. <laughs> what are the odds? Like, what drew you to that know. at the time? This right. Irish, uh, this Irish American, right. like, like no, Kate Leahy, this, right? So, um, I had uh, really good Armenian American friends, and okay. they were the friends of mine who knew more about food and talked more about food than anybody else I knew. And I loved food, but it wasn't cool to be into food then. It wasn't like it was a hot subject. It was kind of like a novelty sure. to have this family that was like, oh, you want to talk about bread for three hours? Let's do it. So um, I was always interested in that tie between Armenians and food. And so when John was talking about his experience, it was like all of a sudden I'm, you know, dusting off the cobwebs from that memory of working on that um, thesis. And I'm thinking, you know, there's a book here. These uh-huh. images are amazing. Your story is amazing. Maybe we need to figure out how to put this book together, but we need, the two of us aren't the right fit. We need another element. Uh-huh. And that's when we got connected with Ara because we needed somebody who had the Armenian American background who could say, okay, the food in Armenia is actually different from the food that I knew growing up. Yeah. Right. Definitely. It definitely is much, much yeah. different. Um, they kind of came together and they had the idea of, of making this book more or less. And John and I got connected through a technology school called Tumo out in Armenia. Mm -hmm. And what they did was they, the head of Tumo, uh, this lady named Mary Lou, who's amazing, by the way, she kind of orchestrated this meeting between me and John because she knew she wanted to bring me in to do a cooking workshop for the school. And while she was in LA and having a meeting with me, she brought John in. John and I got to talking and he told me about the idea of, of, basically making the book. Right. And he asked after speaking, uh, talking over with Kate, he asked if I would join in. So we kind of collabed all together on a Skype call on a Skype call. call. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and the idea was, you know, let's do an Armenian cookbook, but how are we going to do an Armenian cookbook? And initially it was, it was let's do an Armenian cookbook. Cause there's all these great Armenian recipes and this and that. And then we were talking about how we would get so much pushback from the diaspora because Armenian food is so spread out and uh-huh. it has so many influences from all the other countries that the diaspora spread out to. So you'll get Lebanese Armenian food, Egyptian Armenian food, you know, Syrian Armenian food. There's, there's Russian Armenian. So in order for us not to get any 
pushback where like let's go to Armenia right and tour the country go village to village and get food of, from what they're actually making right now right let's get to that trip okay. in a second okay. um I, I love how you all weaved this story together for us it's all these little like moments of serendipity that brought the three of you together yeah. how long did that process take like so you <laughs> john you taught the class in 2015 yeah it was summer 2015 and then uh quickly after i came back from that trip uh i had met kate and started to talk to her about it and it had just been brewing it just was this idea but I think it probably was, was it a year? It was a year. It was, it was about a year yeah. before you and I met. It was a year. Okay. Yeah, I think it was. And then, right. Yeah. And then, and then when you and I met, it probably been a couple months, I think, until, uh, we had our first Skype call. Okay. I, I think it took, um, from the time John went to Armenia to the time we wrote the proposal, it was like a two year. I think it was two years. Yeah, about two years. Yeah. Then we had to find somebody who was willing to take a chance on an Armenian cookbook. Sure. So that was a process. So when, by the time we finally got the deal, we're just like, Oh my God, now we, but now we have to figure out how to write this book. (laughs) And originally you thought you would title it Armenia the cookbook, right? Or or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, We kicked around the idea. We were, we were saying like, let's call it Armenia. Uh And then we're like, we call it Armenian food. Right. And we, we went through like, we had the three B's. Oh yeah. The the three B's, (laughs) right? Yeah. Breads, uh, bones and and barbecue. barbecue. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You know, right. Cause Armenian has great bread. It's like a Texas (laughs) barbecue book. You don't know what you're getting. But then it goes back to the story and John, I'll kick it to you about just um, this moment, your first trip to Armenia on the first time you really had lavash and what it right. Like so yeah. so you know you know I, I was you know teaching this this you know three week uh, food photography workshop sure. to a bunch of kids or teenagers, um, but really they were kind of the ones teaching me because I was one being led around like I don't know anything about Armenian food. Um, but one day, uh, right now I do. Yeah. Bizarrely, this Chinese American guy from San Francisco was becoming an expert in Armenian food. Right. Right. But, uh, 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 but one of my students, Inessa Karapetian, she, uh, we just happened to, we needed something to shoot one day, you know, to go photograph. So she volunteered, volunteered her grandmother to go to her house in the suburbs or kind of the village outside of the Armenian capital. Sure. And, um, we, uh, to make a lavash, you know, the, the, the flat, the Armenian flatbread. And I, up until then, I had, I'd, I'd only, you know, bought it at restaurants or, you know, stores, but I hadn't really seen how it was made. And I think it was just the process of seeing it. It was, you know, uh, it was a country home and they, she had like this little dedicated kind of like garage kind of a shed space okay. with this, uh, underground oven called a tonier. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I guess all country houses have their, their own toniers or whatever. But it was just kind of seeing this for the first time and seeing her make this really amazing bread that was, I mean, it, it was chewy, but it was crisp and just had everything about it. It was really wonderful. It, it reminded me a little bit of like maybe, uh, you know, kind of a, a really nice thin crust pizza, but it wasn't the same. It was just, and then, you know, pairing it up with, you know, the, the Armenian cheeses and then the herbs and, um, it was just so simple, but it was elegant and it was beautiful. Yeah. Um, and I was really blown away by it. Um, so and, our story kept coming back to, to Lavash. It was sort of like this, this bread is just so unique and so special and so delicious that, and we can't find it really easily at the stores. Um, it's something that you think of as just like, Oh, that's the flatbread that's found in plastic and maybe you use it as a low carb option. But right. we're thinking this is much more special than that. Right. So, um, it was finally our agent who looked at us and she said, why don't you just call the book Lavash? 
you know? And it, and it just clicked. It, it felt right. Yeah. yeah. And, and that experience of having lavash for the first time, John, I think I was even reading the R. You grew up in an Armenian household, but yeah. it was still, it's still different than yeah. what you were eating as a kid, right? There's very a distinction. Much, very much so. Uh, growing up as a kid in LA, as an Armenian, we ate lavash, but it wasn't our primary bread. Mm-hmm. In in uh, in LA, we ate a lot of pita bread. I mean, we grew up in an Armenian-Egyptian house, so we had a lot of Egyptian influence. Sure. And what I grew up as thinking was Armenian food wasn't necessarily Armenian food. So like the first time I went to Armenia, I was a little bit shocked. Um, I didn't know most of the dishes. I was like, what is this stuff? Yeah. I, I, where's the, where's the manta? Like, that's like stuff I grew up with that wasn't readily available out there. Nobody even knew what it was. Right. So lavash, for example, we, we ate it growing up, but it wasn't the only bread in the house. Sure. Where in Armenia, it's the center of every table, every dish, everything has lavash with it. Yeah. It all comes back to lavash. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about the cuisine of Armenia. Um, maybe let's start with lavash then, and you can sort of fill us in on yeah. on the rest of the cuisine. But how do you make lavash then? And, and I know one of the first questions you had when you traveled to the country is yeast or no yeast, right? It's, or what type of yeast? Yeah, it's such a good question because I, uh, before we went, um, we were looking at all these recipes. Uh-huh. We're looking at all the, the any recipe written in English that, that we found um, through old Armenian cookbooks or newer Armenian cookbooks okay. to, to kind of see what was out there. And none of them had yeast in them. Or they would have weird things like sour cream or yogurt or baking mm. powder. Right. Um, and I thought, well, that's kind of odd. So I wanted to get to the bottom of it because I just thought something doesn't quite click with what John told me about his experience eating it. So our first stop was we went to Goom, which is the big mm-hmm. um, main market in Yerevan. Right. Um, and they have piles of, of lavash everywhere and women are selling it and we start interviewing them. And we're thinking, okay, okay, do you use yeast? And they're looking at us like, I don't know what you're asking. And then we finally uh-huh. found the the Russian Armenian word for it is like droz. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So like droz, like, yes, we have droz. And I thought, okay, well, all these recipes that we have, they might be true to whoever wrote those recipes, but they're not how lavash is being made in Armenia today. So they are using yeast almost. Yeah, they do use yeast. But as we bounced around from place to place asking, you'd ask one person, they're like, no, 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 no. Okay. We don't use yeast. Uh-huh. You ask somebody else, they're like, yes, droge. <laughs> but they would say droge or if they said no, and then we'd ask them what they used, they would show us yeast. And they'd say tutkhamor. Tutkhamor. Tutkhamor is the old dough. And right. that, uh, okay. that like is a starter kind of, sort of, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. It's basically what, what it, it led up to. Um, and it took a lot because a lot of, a lot of the people that we asked for these recipes, they they are, they're more than willing to give it to you. It's just, they don't really know what they're giving you. So a lot of the things they kind of just expect you to already know because they've been doing it for so long. Sure. Uh, and so the yeast is a, is a, is a great one because it took us a while. It took us yeah. a long time, um, uh, before we were like, literally, let's look at your process, watch you guys make it. Yeah. Right. And the thing is, like, I mean, it's a very small amount of yeast. And I think if you were making it um, at home and you happen to have sourdough starter, you could probably get by without using any added yeast. Sure. But they do it. Um, it's a tiny amount for the amount of dough that they make. But it does give it that little puff that you miss if you're not adding some sort of some sort of leavening. Um, yeah. And they're kind of they, they forget that they put it in because they're always using the old dough from the last batch. So they're making lavash. The next day, they just saved a little. They have a plate of it, literally. Right. And then they just scoot that into their next batch of dough. And then they whip that up. And they just continue to make this 
this lavash taking a piece of their dough, taking the piece of their dough. So that's their starter, essentially. Right. But it's a very small amount. Right. Yeah. They forget they're adding it because it's just sort of yeah. naturally occurring it's, it's in like, that, that process. Yeah. yeah. We're like, what do you do when you start mm-hmm. when you don't have the old dough? They're like, we put the old dough. <laughs> right. right. You never don't have the yeah. old dough. What do you right, 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 right. You have to have the old dough. Yeah. We've sort of skirted around maybe the significance too of lavash, right? And I, I'm curious if you can speak to that for a second because I mean, not only is it sort of a staple of every meal in Armenia, but it's, it's, it has like a, a really status. It, it's actually been recognized by UNESCO, right? Because of its importance yeah. and its significance to the cuisine and the culture. What is it that makes it so special and is so elevated in that sense that it's been recognized to that degree? One thing about Armenia that makes it complicated to figure out when you're talking about Armenian food is that there's Western Armenian food and Eastern Armenian uh-huh, food. Okay. And um, the divide goes back... Um, it goes back centuries. From uh, there was the Persian Armenian or per, per, Persian Empire and the Ottoman Empire, mm-hmm. and there was Armenians living on both sides. But the one thing they always had in common is they would have a tonir and would be making Lush. this bread. Sure. So um, it's a very special thing for heritage. So when um, Armenia formed as a country in the early 1920s, um, people were still making. Lavash. And what's interesting is the Soviets tried to get people to make other types of bread that was more Russian or more Soviet okay. in style, but no one ever stopped making lavash. They uh-huh. would still make it. They would go to the villages. They would fire up their toniers, even if it wasn't, even if they lived in a Soviet block apartment, they would keep a little village place where they could still make it. I think so, the, the thing is that lavash has been around for so long and it keeps through the winter it travels mm. very well sure so it was very important you could rehydrate it yeah, by spraying they, water yeah on it, basically right. what the villagers would do would they get around all the villagers would go around one tonier they build enough or make enough lavash for that one household to have through the winter and then they go to the next household and then have enough for the winter and mm-hmm. it would basically dry out and that's what they were survived off of so it traveled well it held up well yeah they, they it's been such a part of the culture there that they, you know, they wrap their babies in it. You yeah. know what I oh, mean? It's, one thing we have to mention too. Are, are you, is that literal? It, they, it's, it, yes. Okay. <laughs> one thing we have to mention too is um, our cover of the book is, is a piece of lavash that wraps around the book. Uh-huh. And John, do you want to talk about how we got that image? Because we kind of caused a little bit of a controversy. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm a controversy, but, <laughs> but, but, but if, if humor, if anything, uh, so the one place that we ended up getting, uh, our lavash recipe is this uh, baker in the small village called Argel. Okay. Yeah, we, we, we spent a lot of time there actually. And one of the things we did is we, we realized we need to shoot a cover photograph. And we had this idea, you know, the, the lavash wrapped literally around the cover. Uh-huh. Um, but we, uh, took, you know, we, we bought a stack of lavash and then we just placed it on the concrete floor, like, you know, this dirty concrete floor. And they were just looking at us going, what are you doing? Don't, don't put it on the floor. Right. And I think they were to like, put this plastic day, down. Right. right. And, and, and Ara, you had just recently visited, uh, yeah, I just, just, got just back like last like week. Five days ago. Right. And, and you went to go visit them in Argel. Okay. And they were still kind of joking about that, about, oh, you're the one yeah. who put the lavash on the, on the concrete floor. You just put you know? it on yeah. the floor. It was I, pretty funny. I'm yeah. sure we broke so many rules. Yeah. We yeah. broke the lavash yeah. rules. Yeah, that's all right. It looks good. So, yeah. 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 So what are some of the other staples of Armenian cuisine then beyond the lavash? Tell us a little but bit about. Should we, but should we like. talk about the difference between, you know, you, you know, start talking about Eastern, Eastern and Western, Western and, uh-huh. the, and why, and, the, yeah. and one of the reasons why this book that we're focusing so much on the food within the geographic borders versus the diasporan food. I mean, about a, 104 years ago was the, it was the Armenian genocide mm-hmm. and, um, the, uh, the Armenians, 
that fled. They fled to, to Syria. They fled to, to Lebanon. They fled to Egypt, like Ara's uh, you know family, or, yeah. or to Western Your Turkey. Great great grandfather, yeah, right? yeah right. exactly. Or they they fled to Boston. They fled to Fresno, California, and uh-huh. these other places. And by doing that, what happens then is that that the generations of the Armenians there they start taking on kind of food characteristics of the place they live, right? So sure. all of a sudden, the Armenian food. Like say in Lebanon, takes more of a kind of Lebanese kind of flavor, becomes more Levant style. Uh, but whereas with the uh, Armenian food in Armenia or or uh, Hayastan, you know, that's what's you know culturally called, uh, that was almost kind of like a time capsule because that uh, had this kind of Soviet kind of thing. So for like so it was a seventy years, or whatever it was, mm-hmm. it was Soviet. Sure, and it kept to the, it was it was, it was not, not quite hermetically sealed, but kind of it retained its own kind of character compared to all the other the diasporan kind of Armenian food. Right. I mean, so so the so the idea of the food there is is distinctively different. I mean, you guys. Want One to of the more. things too is just when you think of um, a lot of times like Ara, you grew up um, when you're having horovats, which is like what we were thinking of bones barbecue. Well, uh-huh. horovats yeah. is 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 is, is, is Armenian it, barbecue. It's uh-huh. made well, on it's, a mongol. There, it's meat skewered up, skewered, right, essentially yeah, yeah. cooked without a grill. Just overlump coal, sure, and that's what we call chorovads. It's it's barbe- it's Armenian barbecue, right? Right, and and for for you growing up, you're using lamb or beef in Armenia. It's pork, and that always throws people off because they're like, "Oh, Armenia, it's so full of all these great lamb dishes." But because of the Soviet centralization of food, um, pork became really big. But it didn't happen until after the 1920s, and then this this kind of tradition. Like pork was the favorite meat, Interesting. and actually lamb is it. It has a place there. It okay. still is. Uh, it's still eaten and it's still popular, but it's not. Pork is definitely the I more. I mean, Armenians are historically sheep herders, so there's a lot of lamb. I mean, you'd be driving down the street and you get, all of a sudden it gets blocked by right. a bunch of sheep, <laughs> right? And you, your car can't go anywhere, so you just get out and take pictures, right? And and so we're historically sheep herders, so there's a lot of lamb. The amount of beef cows are a little bit not as healthy. Okay. Um, to say they're not, not as plump. Yeah. And sure. most okay. of the, most of the villagers sell their lamb. They sell their beef. So they don't actually eat as much of it. Pork is a little bit more abundant. One of the little cities, little towns, one of my favorites called Dilijan. Mm-hmm. They, they stake claim to the greatest pork in the world is what they say. <laughs> okay. They claim it. Okay. Like, this right, is the greatest right, right. pork. And uh-huh. honestly, it's some of the best. So it's, yeah. pork is a, is a very abundant meat out there. Right. Yeah. And then, so, and you think of other Soviet influences, um, like you see more sour cream and yogurt being used side by side in baking. Um, some of the baking recipes, like we have this, um, uh, to jump into desserts really just as a side, yeah. um, we have this great baklava recipe. Uh-huh. And, um, Armenian Americans would call it paklava probably and use, um, filo dough. And there we went to this village called Goris, which is known to be close to this like beautiful monastery called Tatev. So if anyone ever in this part of the world, you have to go and see Tatev and also go to Goris and eat the beans there and the, 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 the baklava. And the baklava, what's cool about it is that you make the dough yourself. It's three layers. So you don't have a lot of layers that you're constantly trying to brush with enough clarified butter. Sure. Um, and you have this walnut sort of egg, egg white meringue layer. Okay. And I feel for that, like, I, I think the woman who showed us the recipe pulled out a book that was definitely from Armenian Soviet, like, cookbook era. Mm-hmm. And she did the recipe from that book and we converted it to be able to use it in the U.S. with our measurements. And I'm really proud of that recipe, not only because of this amazing story of this woman who just took the time, spent all afternoon with us, didn't ask for anything in response. She just wanted to share what she knew. And it's just like, it's such a delicious pastry. We had it. Yeah. We're just like, 
what is this? Like, we need this recipe. Yeah. Right. It's not, it's not as heavy and dense as the baklava that we're used to uh-huh. here, you know. Um, I mean, it, I mean, it's different. Is it? It's like something that's a little lighter. It's not yeah. that sweet. I think what I learned is that there's room for a lot of different styles of baklava. And this just happens to be one that's really interesting and will kind of throw people, it'll be a little unexpected. To, yeah. to come back to, to what you said, how would Les Lavash, you know, what other recipes you yeah. find inside of it? Um, Armenian cuisine typically when you're in Armenia, there's the table is filled with lavash, a lot of greens, mm-hmm. cheeses. It's typically bread and greens. You'll eat a lot of that. Sure. Uh, there's a lot of grain recipes inside the book. If you talk to an Armenian and you're invited to Armenia, you go to Armenia, they will push on you the chorovads, the barbecue. Right. But on a traditional table around summer families, salad, there's it's summer salad. It's, yeah. a, it's, so it's tomatoes, uh, cucumbers, onions, cucumber, right, right. and it's just it's dressed with some oil. Sure. That's it. Salt and pepper and then greens, mixed greens. Right. Every market or, or place they sell herbs and vegetables, they have a bouquet of herbs and they call it kharn, which okay. just means green. Kharn gananchi. So gananchi is green. It's literally mixed green uh-huh. and they put it in everything. So you would literally, you pick up a bouquet of, of herbs. It would mixed have herbs, cilantro, yep. cilantro um, tarragon, parsley, uh, dill. Yeah, and sometimes chervil if you're lucky. Okay. It's, yeah, a little it's kind of, opal basil. Exactly, purple uh-huh. basil. Um, and and basically most of the dishes they'll literally take it and finish it off. They'll take it, cut it in half. Mm. They don't pluck off the the leaves. Right. They cut it straight in half, turn it around With so the, the leaves and stems, and then finally chop it up. Okay. And that yeah. goes on everything. Okay. It goes in your lavash with your cheese. It goes mm-hmm. on on the finished dishes. It goes in everything. So you always have this this great aroma. And these are like sort of prepackaged bundles, right? Like it's you li- just imagine like a, a bouquet you would give to somebody uh-huh. on Valentine's Day, right? But it's herbs. <laughs> but it's herbs. I, I really, love it. I really it's, wish we had this. Honestly, it's so good. That's it's so good. So good. That's amazing. It, so I want to talk about the book creation process a little bit too, okay. because I know Kate and John in particular, you've worked on quite a few cookbooks um, as a writer or a co-author and as a photographer, John. This book, I think, is maybe a little different than some of them that you've worked on in that you arrive in the middle of major protests. Yes. Right. Yes, <laughs> I mean, unless that's how most of your cookbooks have gone, no, but I'm no, guessing no. no. <laughs> that's well, standard practice, right? Right, right. right. Um, and you, John, in particular, are like pulled into it as a, as a photojournalist. Right, right. So my background's in photojournalism. Um, I, 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 you know, in a previous life, I, I joke, uh, I was a staff photographer at the Chicago Tribune. Uh-huh. Um, uh, kind of, you know, the, the, the last kind of heyday of newspapers before newspapers started to go away. Yeah. But, uh, um, so I did, a, I did conflict photography for a few years, you know, okay. so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm used to that stuff. Um, so I have the photojournalism kind of, you know, DNA. Um, and which is one of the reasons that, that draw me to this, this project. I partially because it has a, a kind of strong kind of storytelling. It's not just food on a plate right. know, in a studio. But when we scheduled the, the, the cookbook, uh, you know, research trips, um, you know, we had scheduled, we had talked about it a year in advance. At least. Um, yeah, at yeah. least in a year in advance. So we we're going to go in, you know, April, May of 2018 because that was just going to be a good kind of season. You know, things were starting to grow and sure. it worked for our schedules. I mean, little did we know that, that, that happened to also just kind of hap- uh, become, uh, politically Armenia started to, um, Things were changing, and then that there was a velvet revolution that kind of mm-hmm. popped up during then. Armenia's, you know, it's, it's a former Soviet satellite state, and used to, and it, it's used to kind of like that kind of a cronyism, you know, kind of a you know a corrupt kind of oligarchy kind uh-huh. of kind of government. 
Um, and then there was this a very kind of their equivalent of like a Barack Obama kind of person, this guy named Nico Pashinian, okay. who uh, was uh, who was a journalist and he was a political prisoner for a while. I think he's in his early forties. He's, he's a relatively young guy, and he led this uh, he led this kind of nationwide kind of youth movement that basically kind of galvanized the entire country um, to to change. Uh, but we ha- and this Velvet Revolution happened for about a month, and we were there for three weeks out of the month. Uh, the day that I that that I first showed up, I showed up a day before Ara and Kate you know, showed up in, in Armenia. Okay, and uh, I showed up. Uh, we should you know, never let you no, go we before. Never let you go. Well, so 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 <laughs> what so what so what happened was so it was it was me and it was an art director that that we both you know got to Armenia and so I figured okay let's you know I'll I'll show the art director around we'll go get some coffee in the morning and uh-huh. we'll go look at some sites and then maybe we'll hop into a taxi and go look at a ninth century monastery somewhere, uh, but. Uh, so we, you know, but we were kind of walking around the city in the morning and in the central part of the, of the city, there's a big kind of like Soviet type of a square called Republic Square. Uh-huh. And on one side of it is, uh, is the, the Marriott hotel. It's, at, at that time it was like the nicest hotel in Yerevan. And, uh, there was a bunch of people outside and I'm thinking, oh, is there, is there a celebrity? Because right. you know, when the, the Kardashians, like that's where they would stay, you know? Sure. And, uh, but then it didn't look like screaming kids. They looked kind of like an angry, you know, group of people. Uh, and then, uh, I have a, a, my buddy, uh, 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 Eric Gregorian, who's a photojournalist there. Uh, I texted him, I goes, Hey, what's going on? And turns out, um, Nico Pashinian, the, the, the kind of the revolutionary, um, you know, kind of protest guy, he was having a public meeting with then, uh, the, 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 yeah, the prime minister, the prime minister of, of Armenia. Okay. Uh, um, uh, oh, God, just blanked out on his name, actually. Um, uh, Sarkeesian. Yeah, yeah, yeah right, Serge. right. Serge. No, Serge says, no, no, Yeah, uh, yeah, okay, yeah. well, but, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, so, yeah, exactly. He's such a footnote that yeah. we now forgotten his name. <laughs> sure. But, uh, but yeah. he, uh, but it, it became a pretty tense thing. It was, it was kind of sort of done for the cameras, you know, for, for okay. media. Right. Um, you know, the, the then prime minister stormed out and kind of made some threats to the, 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 um, the revolutionary leader. Uh, and then the revolutionary leader you know, came out of the hotel and they decided to do a big kind of march to this one kind of a suburb called Arabuni. Um, and I think it's about like a thousand people were, okay. were marching. And, and that was part of the thing that his, pro- his protests were, they were marching throughout the whole country. And I decided like my, my photojournalism autopilot kind of kicked in. Right. Uh, and I started to photograph and just kind of following with them. Uh, in the times that I have been to Armenia, Armenia is an incredibly safe country. Everyone knows each other. You just feel it. You, this is one of those places you keep the door unlocked. You know, kids are out playing, you know, until, you know, three, four, I mean, until no, like, like 11, 11 p.m. I mean, 11 a.m. I mean, 11 p.m. till, till like, you know, no, but really like, like in, in a, in a, in a, in a summertime, like, you know, it's 11 p.m. and, and they're out, they're out playing. Right. And it's still, it's just, it's great. It's, sure. It's, it's a very family oriented. Everybody knows each other. Sure. Uh, it's just safe. Um, mm-hmm. so I, kind of had that in my head and you know that this is just gonna be a protest like armenia is a safe country no big deal you know um but then uh for some reason that march i think because it just became a big it, it became a, a that was a really particularly kind of like tense moment um but then prime minister uh i guess you know decided just to just call call in the call in the the, the goons really basically and uh once uh i guess i'm gonna try to explain this they um, try to take him well, so what happened was that, yeah, so then basically, uh, the, the protest, the, the march got very violent when, um, 
the it was almost like paramilitary like paramilitary uh, you know kind of uh, you know okay. soldiers came in uh-huh. with these big things that, uh they and they based, they arrested Nicole Pashinian and they not grabbed him there's a big kind of you know kind of not quite a riot but it just became this big melee sure uh and then I'm photographing 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 and then all of a sudden I hear this one woman looking at me right in front of me kind of screaming just looking at me I don't I don't speak Armenian I have no idea I was like, what? And then I looked down, and the second I looked down, it was an explosion. Um, it was this bright yellow white light that exploded right at my feet. And I felt this, you know, like this, this jarring, warm kind of, you know, feeling on my legs. Yeah. Turned out it was one of those, um, I guess they're called concussion grenades or, or, or I forget what, whatever it's a type of grenade that, that. It's like a flash bomb. Flash bomb. Okay. What they do is it, they, they, you know, you throw it into an, a crowd to disperse the crowd. And the very first one happened to explode right, literally right at my feet. At your feet, yeah. And the shrapnel from it ripped through my legs, so you know, my my jeans, and you know, kind of dug into my legs, and and I, you know, I was bleeding. I mean, like pretty bad. Right. Um, uh, I didn't realize how bad it was uh, until about half hour later. I mean, I was still able to walk, but it was kind of it was pretty scary. I realized like like I had holes in my legs and stuff like that. Um, but uh, I ended up having to go to the emergency room that day sure. in, in Armenia, Armenia emergency room. It was, it was great. I mean, they, they, they took care of me. I think they were probably also a little bit embarrassed because this Armenian, this, this guest of Armenia, you the know, this foreigner, uh-huh. which is probably, I think, I think I would, I might have been one of the only casualty, you know, you know physical casualty. You were on Al Jazeera. Yeah. yeah, you were. I, yeah. Yeah, I, okay. yeah. Someone caught the footage of, of the actual explosion on Al Jazeera, you know, yeah. uh, yeah, so I ended up getting injured. I, I, I went into to operating new room that day and they yeah. took out a bunch of shrapnel and I had stitches and we ended up having to, to do the, the book research while I'm fully stitched up. And so we show move. up, we show up and we, Kate and I land about the same time, um, at around two in the morning. John doesn't say anything. We're <laughs> talking and texting back and forth. Okay. I'm here. The driver's going to pick you up. I got a what? story for you. I got That's a story. We show up to our apartment where we were all staying and the elevator doors open up and John's standing there in his boxers, just <laughs> stitches all up his leg. He's like, I got blown up. <laughs> and this is probably the first time and maybe last time working on a cookbook that we can say like this, you know, don't take this work lightly, man. Yeah. Like, we well, put ourselves yeah. in the front line. Right. Well, well, what's interesting though is so, so back, you know, back at the Chicago Tribune when I was a photojournalist there, I spent, you know, about three years. I, I, I covered, I was, you know, I was in, uh, I was in, uh, you know, basically I was in Manhattan right after 9-11. And then a week later, I find myself in Pakistan for mm-hmm. two and a half months. Okay. You know, you know, covering, you know, covering Islamic fervor, you know, in Peshawar, Pakistan, right? The Afghan border. That, you know, that's dicey. You know, I mean, that this is Taliban, you know, area. Uh-huh. Uh, and then, you know, I found myself in, in, uh, in Iraq. You know, I was in Iraq, you know, in, in Kuwait and then, and then the first kind of push into Iraq during the Iraq war. And I was in Iraq for about a month and a half. Um, not, you know, just, 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 you know, kind of wandering through the desert with a reporter in a sure. rented, you know, in a rented Mitsubishi Mirage. Right. Or Mitsubishi Montero. Or something <laughs> yes. Like that. And then, right, right. right yeah, yeah. No, no, but you know, I, I lived in that, I, li- I lived in that car for, for, for a month and a half. Uh, and then, and then, I, you know, I, I went to go for the last thing I covered was a coup in Haiti. And, you know, Haiti, that's, they're not messing around in Haiti. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I mean, it's, it's rusty machetes and AK 47s and, uh-huh. and really, really drunk and stone kids. Yeah. You know, right. you know, burning tires and stuff like that. And that was a moment where I really thought I was going to die. Like, you know, every day I got up and I was like, I, am I going to get shot? Am I going to get macheted? You know? Right. Um, 
you know, so let's let's do food photography instead. You know, <laughs> nice it's safe, safe, it's easy. <laughs> right. You know, sandwiches or salads aren't going <laughs> to shoot at me. You know, so so I go to this, this country of Armenia, which is very safe. Yeah, and the one place I decide I get actually injured yeah. is is that there. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, to speak a little bit to the safeness of Armenia, that one of the first times when I was there for my workshop, mm-hmm. I showed up at a coffee shop and I'm just sitting alone and this young lady comes and sits next to me and she opens up her laptop, puts her purse down right next to me and she just gets up and goes to the bathroom. Uh-huh. That's the first thing she did. And I'm looking around because like I'm from LA. Right. You don't do stuff like right. that. I'm like, am I getting punked? Is this like a <laughs> right. TV show? What's what's going on? But it's totally normal. Nobody's going to take anything. Nobody's going to steal anything. And yeah. she just came back 15 minutes later. I mean, all there's obviously I'm not going to take her stuff, but right. <laughs> it was just that's right. that's the level of safeness. Like restaurants leave all of their bottles behind the bar in open bars on the streets. Yeah. So wow. It's it, there's no there's like no crime. Yeah. The odds of getting hit by a grenade is yeah. very, very, very minimal. You're right. And the one day where where this this velvet revolution, which was largely peaceful, it was sure. the one day where where it got pretty dicey. You know. So yeah. We'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with Kate Leahy, Arazeda, and John Lee, authors of Lavash. Every Tuesday on Salt and Spine, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nosrat and Allison Roman to today's guests, the Lavash team, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring in-person interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, and so much more. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today to support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content, starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. And now we're headed into the kitchen with Salt and Spine kitchen correspondent Sarah Varney. Sarah dove into the Lavash cookbook and tried out the recipe for arishta with mushrooms. Now, arishta are flour noodles, and they're a traditional staple in Armenian home cooking, but they've also become trendy in fashionable restaurants in the capital city of Yerevan. Sarah teamed up with some good friends who live in San Francisco's Mission District, Nicolette and Jeff, and their daughter, Gabriella. Here's Sarah and friends from San Francisco. Gabriella, how are you? Good. This is Gabriella's mother, Nicolette. Hello. Nice to see you. I have never made pasta by hand, but Gabriella has a lot of experience. We measure the flour and water, and then Gabriella digs her hands into the dough. That's so cold. Gabriella needs the dough for 10 minutes or so, and then the dough and the cooks need to rest. 20 minutes later, we check to see how it's coming along. It's softer and it's more moist. We need the dough some more. Gabriella's on a stool and really putting her muscles into it, and her dad, Jeff, joins in. The brain wanders when standing around a butcher block kneading dough. Who figured out that if you had flour and you put water in it, you could make pasta? That feels like akin to discovering electricity. I think, I think there's huge debates over this between the, the Italians and the uh, Chinese and, the, and just about everybody else. The dough gets stickier and smoother, and we think we're getting close. We've definitely been doing it for eight minutes. Yeah, we've definitely been doing it, yeah. What do you think? Does it look nice and smooth? Yeah, that looks really smooth. We put the dough back in the bowl to let it rest for an hour. And now we need to hunt down some metal clothes hangers that we'll use to dry the pasta overnight. 
So we got to go find some hangers. Sure, we have some. How many do we need? I don't think. Maybe five or so? Five or six? I'm not really sure. Okay, so we found three. Mom, we found three. Okay, and I found two. Okay, Okay. great. We have five. Let's try that. Okay. Great. Back in the kitchen, we sprinkle flour on the counter and cut the dough into quarters to begin rolling it out. It says, working with one quarter at a time, roll the dough out until it's 14 inches by 8 inches. We use wooden dowels from the hardware store, which make it easier to roll out long, wide stretches of dough. Jeff, a mechanical engineer, pulls out a measuring tape to check our progress. Mine's looking pretty good. See what you got? You got 12 12 inches by... Oh, nailed it on the whip. I mean, the eight. <laughs> what kind of shape is that now, Sarah? Okay, I don't know. Okay, my dough is not a perfect rectangle, but it'll do. Gabriella has the brilliant idea to then roll the dough onto the dowel to make a long cylinder. And then you're just going to slide it off the dowel. Oh, that's yeah, brilliant. Archery, uh, and Jeff sharpens the knife, and we cut the cylinder of dough into strips crosswise, about a half an inch wide. We unroll the strips and drape them over the hangers, trying to keep the strands separate. We finished three, and we're hanging up our last one. And are we concerned about the cats getting into this? Ish. Whoa. Do you think they're going to try and bat at it, though? They might. It's kind of dangly. Yeah. yeah. Feels very tempting. If I were a cat, I would be very tempted. Yeah. (laughs) We move the pasta to the bathroom shower, out of reach of the cats, Silver and Nuzzle. Cool. Drying with the clothes in the bathroom. All right, Gabs, we'll see you in the morning. Good see job. Good morning. Good morning, Gabriella. How are you? Good. You're still in your bathrobe, huh? Yeah. I'm still in mine, too. So how did our pasta do last night? We moved it um, because it was, like, falling. No, we moved it because it was unsanitary to have it in the bathroom. As the pasta dried, it became brittle and fell off the hangers and landed on the bathroom floor. Thankfully, Gabriella's parents moved it for us. That evening, I went back to finish up. We toast the pasta on sheet pans in the oven and then start in on the mushrooms. We melt a slab of butter in a saucepan, add in a few cloves of smashed garlic, and then a heap of oyster mushrooms. The mushrooms cook down quickly. We add salt and pepper and a handful of dill. Meanwhile, we've tossed our toasted arishta, which is golden brown, into a pot of boiling water. Some of the strands were thicker than others, so the pasta is cooking unevenly. We drain the pasta, reserving some water, and then add it back into the pot and stir in the buttery oyster mushrooms with dill. Perfect. So there's the salt. You can probably go ahead and sprinkle that on here. And some pepper. Dill is right there. (laughs) Oh my god, it's really good. Mmm. That's good. All right, we're about to sit down and eat. The moment of glory. So wait, what do we do with the yogurt? You um, offer the garlic yogurt at the table so everyone can season their own bowl to their liking. All right. Let's do it. Cheers, Gab. Yeah. Good job. As we all wait out the coronavirus's reign of terror, it's these communal meals I miss the most. I wonder what Armenians in their villages are doing now. I suspect they have the good sense not to hang their drying pasta in the bathroom. That was Salt and Spine kitchen correspondent Sarah Varney making Arishta from Lavash. 
The authors of Lavash write that when they visited the town of Argel, quote, clotheslines filled with what looks like pasta, that's the Arishta, hang in front of nearly every house. Salt and Spine is proud to have storytelling partners like Edible San Francisco. In the latest issue, read about how climate change is already impacting seafood in the Bay Area and follow their website and social media for updates on how the Bay Area is responding to the coronavirus. Subscribe now to ensure you don't miss compelling stories on how San Francisco eats at EdibleSanFrancisco.com. And now back to our conversation with Kate Leahy, Arazeda, and John Lee, authors of Lavash. Yeah, and that gives us a little bit of a, a glimpse into like maybe some of the most interesting or unique components of putting this book together. But you also really sort of chronicle the process of putting this book together on your websites, on social media. Like you were pretty open about the process and these research trips. Did you decide from the outset that that was something you wanted to do? We definitely we did a, a, a good media push. We wanted everyone to know what we were doing uh-huh. and know the steps we took to actually gather these recipes, kind of validate the fact that we are in Armenia. We're not just going to somebody's grandma's house in Glendale and picking up, sure. uh, you know, some of the recipes. So kind of showing our journey and letting everybody follow along was very important to us. And we've kind of done that through mm-hmm. every step of our book process. It's, yeah. Right. And I'd say one of the other things about being able to document on social media is because people don't know exactly where Armenia is or what it looks like. I think having the imagery and being able to show what it actually feels and looks and sounds like, it was fun for us to do it. We didn't do right. it because it was like some masterminded strategy yeah. that we had set out. We just were like, hey, this would be cool. You want to do it? Let's do it. Let's, sure. let's have fun with it. Like this. show people the beauty of the trees and the rivers and all that cool stuff. Yeah, because right. we're, we're, we're gen, I mean, for me, you know, what drew me to Armenia partially, I mean, I'll be honest, is because it is a somewhat untouched, you know, kind of area. You know, yeah, I, I've, I've, you know, I've traveled a lot, you know, at, you know, both in work as well as tourists and stuff like that. Right. You know, you go to Kyoto and like right. you just swamp by tourists. You mm-hmm. go to Trafalgar Square, you're swamped by tourists. You go to, to, to Venice, you go to whatever. It's just swamped everywhere you go is tourists. Yep. Armenia, you know, your ninth, eighth century monasteries all over the place. No one is there. Yeah. It's just, it's, you, you, it's just you in a monastery. Um, and if, and if it felt, it was a, it, it felt swashbuckling. This, this, this country that, that no one really knew anything about, that no, that it was off the beaten path. And I was kind of like, I was let in on a little secret. You yeah. Know? Um, and I, th- I think, I mean, I think I can speak with you that you, you felt the same way, Kate, yeah, but that, definitely. that we're very excited about, you know, you know about sharing, you know, Armenia with the, the world. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> although we're kind of, kind of, kind of letting the secret out, yeah. but you know, right, but right, still, right, you right. Know, cats out yeah. the bag. Right, right. You know, so. So we're a show on cookbooks. So I know you've all worked on cookbooks or consumed cookbooks to influence your careers. Are there particular authors or works that have been particularly influential to any of you over the course of your career or ones that maybe I know you are grew up with an Armenian cookbook oh, that was I sort of omnipresent, story. right? Yes. So, so one of the things that when we were talking about making this book, um, a little thing that kind of bothered me is, my family, my mom, everybody that I know is family has this one cookbook. Uh-huh. It's called the complete Armenian cookbook. Okay. And my mom still references it. A lot of people still use it and it does have Armenian or what I thought were Armenian dishes still in it. Um, but there are dishes in there like, uh, chow mein okay. and stuff like, you know, chicken curry <laughs> yeah. and like stuff that just aren't Armenian. I mean, not sure. even close to being it's Armenian. Beyond complete. Nobody's even complaining. So there's nothing <laughs> right, complete right. Very, about very, it. Very, very complete. So, right. so we were like, like, oh, you know, there really isn't an Armenian cookbook uh-huh. without this outside influence in it, without somebody else's or some other country's type of dish 
involved in it. And yeah. our, our goal was to just kind of make an Armenian cookbook with what they're cooking in Armenia today. Right. And we're not necessarily staking claim that these dishes are Armenian. Our ancestors are the ones that created them. You know what I mean? There's, there's a dish in there called Salata Vinaigrette. That's a, a Russian, Soviet dish. It's right, a Russian right. dish. But anywhere you go in Armenia, you can order it. You can go to somebody's house. They're making it there. So it's an, it's a dish from Armenia that you can go there today and, and get it. Right. You yeah. know, yeah. It, it's not, we're not, it's, it's something that we were, is our goal to do, was sure. our goal to set out to. And I think to, uh, to go back to the question about cookbooks, um, I, I feel that the, the cookbooks that really speak to me and speak to a lot of people, I think are the ones that tell stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think people obviously can go online and they can Google chop suey. Yes. I don't know. Right. Maybe, actually, maybe not, not these days. I, I, maybe <laughs> they need to go to the complete Armenian cookbook yes, and get that recipe. Yes. Um, but I, I think. That's where um, I go first for that. <laughs> yeah, right. for chop suey. Yeah. But, <laughs> but like, I, I think the, the, the books that tell, um, tell stories, I mean, one of the, the, the classics is like the Zuni Cafe cookbook. Like mm-hmm. you have this story and, um, not only is it going to tell you things that chefs have started to use ever since they read that book. I, when I worked as a line cook at A16, uh-huh. um, back in the olden days, um, the the chef the there started days. yes the olden days <laughs> <laughs> the chef there um you know seasoning everything overnight and it's like when did you start doing that Zuni Cafe cookbook yeah that's mm. the one that was wow. like mm-hmm. the salt you know salt in advance that just does so much for right. meat so you get tips you get tips that can are hardworking tips in the kitchen but you also get this beautiful story of a special chef and a special place and and what Judy Rogers kind of contributed to to food and I think the the authors that are doing that today there's so many and it's, it's, it would be hard to choose right. the only ones but people like um I'm really excited for Molly Stevens' book that's coming out yeah. um, this fall uh, because she has such an understated but powerful way of writing about food that you want to eat that you know you can make yourself. Sure. And mm-hmm. Andrea Wynn, too, has this mm-hmm. great uh, gift for telling you things you need to do to make it possible for you to cook the food that she wants to share. And yeah, she the basically, fu- the, her, her yeah. fu- yeah. cookbook. Yeah. Yes. Right. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so there's... There's so many more people now who are, who are bringing those stories, and um, but those are those are some of them that I would probably highlight. Yeah, that's great, John. Any that were influential you know, or meaningful you know, to you? For for me, because I come more from the photography side, so yeah. it's funny is that I I collect cookbooks like I collect photo books, really. Uh-huh. You know, so okay. and, and you know, it, and, and, well, <laughs> so so at home, I, I am I am done, the, done, I am done. the cook at I am the cook at the uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the house, okay. but I'm not necessarily following particularly recipes. If anything, like I, I cook based off of just being in, you know, kind of being surrounded by kitchen, kitchens and, and chefs and food stylists and stuff like that, you know, so I just kind of, you know, whip up whatever. Um, but for me, if anything, I'm, I'm more interested in seeing food from a more cultural kind of anthropological perspective. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess, you know, I mean, lack of a better, you know, you know, description, I guess, like the Anthony Bourdain kind of method, the stories Uh behind it, you know, why, you know, what, you know, why are, you know, is, is this, you know, why the, why is this happening? Why do they do this? And, um, right. Like, say, for instance, one of the things with going back to Lavash, um, what I find very particularly interesting right now, and I think R was talking about this where, you know, this, our book right now is very specific to what the food is being made in Armenia in, like, say, 2018. Yeah. But that's constantly changing because, mm-hmm. um, uh, like, say, for instance, uh, as a result of this velvet revolution and this opening up of Armenia, you have a lot of the, the Armenian diasporans who have, you know, kind of developed their own culture elsewhere. Yeah. Moving back into Armenia to really okay. prop up the country. 
And so, introducing their spices. Yeah. Well, yeah. specifically the Syrian refugees, the Ar- Armenian Sir- Syrian Armenians who were kind of, who fled Syria as a result of all the stuff that's going on right now. Right. Well, they have a very specific taste. They have a, the 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 more kind of seasoned Aleppo peppers, more right. spice that the the more Soviet minded Armenians, the Hayastansi kind of yeah. food is not used to. But what's happening now is that the Syrians are changing the the palate. And maybe it's less cookbook, but uh, because I'm not as, I mean, I, I'll be frank, I'm not as versed in cookbooks as I am, like, say, sure. like, a, like a David Chang kind of like, you know, uh, you know, uh, ugly delicious, <laughs> right. you know, stuff like that, you know, but like, but I am, I am really kind of like, I'm really inspired by those types, like say a spe- specifically the ugly delicious, uh, um, kind of series he had on Netflix yeah. talking about how, especially as me, I'm, I'm a Chinese American, mm-hmm. you know, uh, from, from Taiwan. So, you know, but, but I'm neither, fully Chinese or am I fully American? You know, like right. I can't, it's a third culture kid is kind of what they call it. Exactly. Um, but the idea of what is diasporan food and what is Chinese food, you know, uh, is, and also like, say for instance, like in the Bay area, a guy, a guy like Brandon Jew, you know, mm-hmm. Mr. Jews, right. Is Which his, will be a great cookbook. Yes. Yeah, right. I heard oh, there's I'm one coming. Right. Yeah. Right. They're working on it. Right. But his, uh, you know, his cooking or like say, or even going back to chop suey, right. You know, is that any less legitimate than some food in Sichuan province or, you know, or, you know, you know, Xiaolongbao soup dumplings, you know, which technically is a Shanghai thing, but it's really the Taiwan now, right? So, right. yeah, so the stuff like that, you know, so like th- that to me is, is, is what's fascinating. So it's kind of like those, yeah. those cookbooks that capture a place in time and they can be yeah. a ca- time capsule. I mean, think of like the Noma cookbook when it came out. I mean, that's a time capsule. Right. Book. There's right. no way they don't, well, the restaurant is, you know, that it's changed. I don't know if anyone's cooking like that. <laughs> that those dishes will never be made. Like I'm, I can't right. find elderflower, right. um, like not even elderflower. It would be Essence. like something like we would just call it like um, mountain sorrel. And the joke is Everything. in Armenia, we would find herbs that we didn't know. And we would just, the joke would always be, oh, that's just mountain sorrel. Right. Well, yeah, we would yeah. research. They, they tell us this herb, this green, and we, we do some Google searching because we don't know what it is. We don't know where right. it And everything went back to mountain sorrel. Okay. <laughs> it'd be like, well, something would be completely different than the next. And it's just mountain sorrel. Or it was right. time. 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 Yes. Urts. Everything urts. is urts. Yeah, this is right. urts from the hills. Uh-huh. This is urts from the midlands. This is right. urts from the ground. So we would literally have to <laughs> taste this herb and think, and Ara and I would look at each other and go, that's summer savory. Yes. Yeah. So that's okay. savory. <laughs> that savory. is that herb. It is not time. It's not or time for the Because they would say, this is time. And then this is wild time. Yes. Uh-huh. yes. So said, we had a lot of time out there. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so I think like cookbooks like ours, like, um, it's, it's about capturing a time and a place. And, um, you know, our hope is that there's, this will open the door for a lot more new Armenian cookbooks to be written from the, different perspectives. The stories, yeah. the stories, the pictures and the things that are in this book versus Armenian books in the past that are mainly all self published. They're literally just texts with ingredients yeah. and how to's. And, no and that's a very, that's a very common thing that I got a lot of the times when somebody's like, Oh, when's your guys' cookbook coming out? Where is it going to be sold? Is it going to have pictures in it? Sure. Like, so these, the modern type of book tells the story. It shows the journey. It has, uh, recipes that people can follow. Uh, all of our recipes are actually, they actually work. <laughs> Which well, that's wow, that's a novel. Yes. Well, one of the things too is that um, I think these Armenian cookbooks that have been published in the past, I think they assume people know how to cook already. That's that's typically uh, you know? yes. They yeah. assume sure. they assume a level of um, understanding on how kitchens work and how yeah. to measure ingredients. That they their their details instructions are extremely brief. A lot yeah. of them, everything says to taste. 
So yeah. it's just right. like, mm-hmm. a, there's a, in Armenia, that could also be say, a cop out too. Yeah, yeah, you know, very, right, very, right. yeah very much so. Cause yeah. they, a lot of the ones they are just, they don't know how to measure properly. Uh-huh. Um, Armenians cook, they, they say achki chop, which is by the eye. Okay. So that was a challenge for us going village to village. Like Kate and I are trying to dissect what these people are pouring into their dishes. Right. And they're like, yeah, and you take one cup of this. Well, like, that's stop, not a stop, cup. Stop, what, stop. Kind of cup is that? <laughs> what is that? Well, let's measure well, that. Uh, Kate, did you see that? I didn't see that. But, but that's that? also a fun way. I mean, frankly, that's the way I like to cook. Right? I mean, that you is know, how the, the you Samin should be. The yeah. style, right? Right. I mean, you know, uh-huh. we would be, uh, we would ask questions like, yeah, did you put this in there? We didn't see you. And they're like, of course we put that in there. Well, like, you're supposed to tell us and you <laughs> right. don't turn your back and add either. Is there right. vinegar in the pickles? Of course, of course there is. Right. Like, Did you no. guys put salt in this? Of yeah. course there is. Like, help us out. It took yeah. a lot of spying. On, right? Our eyes were locked. We couldn't look up. We had our notepads. And yeah. you looked at them. They're just a mess because we couldn't take our eyes off of what, what everyone was doing. It was madness. Yeah. It's a great way to cook, but a hard yeah. way to make a cookbook. Oh, yeah. right. Exactly. Right. Right. Especially and when people to, want exact yeah. rounds. We had to cross right. reference. Right. I was like, did you get this on that your notes? And I got this on. We both wrote the exact notes and we'd have to cross reference. And then when we were testing the recipes, like, this doesn't quite work. Like, she was right. lying to us. <laughs> yeah. They were lying that she just didn't. It, Get, she didn't get sure. how to explain it yeah, properly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Lots of translation. Definitely yeah. happened a lot. Well, we always end with a little game. Yes. So let's play a little game. We have these cards in front of you here, our, our secret ingredient cards. So this stack here, the blue stack, is more sort of, I say, obscure ingredients. Sometimes they're not really obscure. Sometimes they're things like gummy bears. You don't know <laughs> what you're going to get. Wild cards. Vegetables, proteins, flavors. So I thought the theme of our game today could be because you're your book posits that everything comes back to lavash (laughs) that we're going to pretend everything does come back to lavash for this game. And we're going to say you're cooking dinner tonight. You have lavash, you know, it's that that lavash is going to be on the table and you have to prepare something to go alongside it. So the, the options are sort of endless here, but each of you can draw, um, four cards here and we'll go one by one and see what dish you can. Do we do one of each? Uh, you could do one of each. I think that makes it fun, right? Let's do one of each. Okay. Who wants to start us off? Ara? He, he, so he needs a secret ingredient. <laughs> yes. Definitely. Should I just pick all of them? Pick them yeah, pick one of each and then tell us what you have um, to work with. It's it's sort of like chopped, right? You've got your basket here. Ooh. Open up Ooh. the basket. What do you have? You've got a good one. Yes. I have a uh, scrapple. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> pork, pork chops and yeah. cornmeal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. I have bell peppers. Uh-huh. I have chicken and ginger. Okay. Ooh, nice. Yeah. And you've got lavash on the side. Oh. I got lavash on the you've side. You've got a meal. You so, yeah, yeah. Is, what are you going to make? Tell us. This is actually a, a pretty simple thing. I, I think I can, uh, the scrapple is probably the only one that's a little bit weird. Think of bastrma, but like softer and not uh, spreadable. salty. Wait, yeah. think, oh, of, spreadable. think of what did you say, Kate? Scrapple. Bastrma is, can you tell us what that is? Yeah, go ahead. It's a cured. Best meat ever. <laughs> it's a classic cured Armenian um, uh, meat, and it's something that you would you would make uh, in the fall. So you would have cured meat in the winter, and it's got, got this it. amazing um, mix of spices. The joke is in Armenia that if you're going to eat it, you don't want to like go on a hot date or something because it oh, definitely right. is strong <laughs> with the spices and the garlic. Garlic, um, right, right. But it's it's really delicious. And Ara, um, or maybe it. you want to yes. go. Right. Yeah. Day. yeah, that's that's a good test. That's a good test for the day, true. right? Yeah. Um, Ara makes a great version. We have it in our cookbook, actually. Yeah, so, fascinating. Yeah. Okay, so with this, probably what I would do is is uh, 
take my chicken, dice up some bell peppers. Can I add other ingredients? Yeah, so, yeah. So yeah. Onions, this is your starting point. Onions, garlic, ginger, uh, mm-hmm. salt, pepper, some mountain thyme or some <laughs> mountain sorrel, maybe right? mountain, yeah, mountain sorrel, mountain sorrel. <laughs> uh, mix that up, kind of make a marinade, then yeah. do a Horovads kind of barbecue, skewer ah. it up. Then I would take my scrapple here, <laughs> okay, and then uh, probably cook if it's it's soft. You said. Kind of like, uh, so yeah, I yeah, chop yeah. it up kind of and then mix it maybe with a little bit of cream. I can lay all this after it's cooked the chicken into my lavash, use the scrapple as like a sauce, roll it up and got a little Horovat mm. sandwich. Like a salty, creamy, porky <laughs> sauce. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Delicious. Sounds great. All right. Who wants to go next? All right. Kate? Okay. Okay. Let's what see. do we have? What do we have? Mustard. Muta. I love mustard. <laughs> Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Ooh, uh, cockroaches! Cockroaches! All right, protein. Yeah, Cucumber good protein. and tofu. All right, so I've got uh-huh. my um, lavash. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to deep fry those cockroaches, uh-huh. and um, I'm going to season them with some sea salt and some Aleppo pepper. Okay. Um, I'm going to saute the tofu, and um, I'm going to. Maybe use the mustard. I'm going to mix the mustard with a little bit of honey, a little bit of soy, and I'm going to brush the tofu as I'm um, searing it. I'm going to sear it. Sear it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm going to sear it. So um, I'm doing it fast. This oh, is a okay. one-hand okay. job. Okay. Okay. I got you. I'm going to warm up the lavash a little bit. You yeah. know, um, so it's this. The tofu is going to go in there. I'm going to slice some. I'm going to have. I'm going to have pickled the cucumbers in advance. I forgot about that with a little um, rice wine okay. uh, vinegar. Uh huh. Um, and so it's going to be the tofu, the the pickled cucumbers, and then I'm going to drizzle some extra the mustard, soy, honey sure. sauce, mm. and the cockroaches will go on top for the crunchy bits. I'm going to oh. roll that up and then slice it. And just I'll don't tell anyone about the cockroaches. As little uh, dish. yes, mm. ah, little oh, pin, like little pinwheels. Yes, there ah, we go. Yeah. Delicious. Yeah. So I don't know. I think it needs a little more workshopping, but yeah. I like it. You okay. only have ten minutes. Oh, yeah. God, I'm so stressed. <laughs> yeah. How are you going to pickle the? <laughs> I know. Do it fast. I love it. I can do the pickles. I yeah. can do that in like five minutes. Yeah. A yeah. crispy Master. cockroach yes. tofu pinwheel. Mm-hmm. That's how I, I roll. It. Next, yeah. next cookbook. I'm, I'm <laughs> ready for the recipe. Yes. All right, John, John what do we have? I have octopus, which oh, I, I love. Mm, okay. Carrots. Yeah. Chickpea and cilantro. Okay. Right. So And lavash. And lavash. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I uh, I... Everything, when it comes to cooking, I view it from the lens of how to cook for my kids. Okay. Which, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I have one that, that, that likes to eat vegetables and one that eats nothing but, but grilled cheese and like sure. burgers and nothing else. And so it's, it's a pain. It's, it's actual pain. And I honestly, I'm looking at this and <laughs> n- there's nothing my son will eat. Okay. <laughs> there's nothing. I mean, I mean, chickpea, I guess. I, I don't know. I can make something. I can, I can hide it Hummus. in something. I that's well. He doesn't even really like hummus that much. But if I I was allowed to drop hints, (laughs) yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah. team effort. Right, 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 right. right, About an octopus falafel. No, the octopus is for me and my wife. (laughs) Like like, we 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 would we would grill this like you know yeah exactly grilled octopus you know. Uh, I mean cilantro is just chop up carrots. I would roast for my daughter. You know. The lavash. I frankly I think I like the idea. How about you do a salad? And then grill the octopus, chickpeas, uh, carrots, but this lettuce, cilantro. But it into your challenge. It's a 
challenge. Right, no, no. My challenge is the how to how to feed my kids. I'm helping. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, what the hell would my son eat? And like, I, like, I look at. I he would take the lavash and he would just roll it up, and eat the lavash. Just the and lavash, then, and yeah. then this, and then all the rest of the food would get thrown in. I would cook it, and it get thrown into the trash because he wouldn't oh. touch it. Oh. No. <laughs> Except the carrot. No, the the octopus. My wife and I will eat. Right. Carrots. Eat. I'll roast for my daughter. Uh-huh. Cilantro. We just kind of yeah on top whatever. And chickpeas. Chickens. I would try to make a hummus. Fry, fry them, and then you could have them as snacks with some chili powder would on he do top. it would he would my son he, you know because it's fried he'll try anything <laughs> because it's fried he might very well try it so. you just made a snack i just well, made a snack there, there you go, you go. There right. sweet <laughs> uh, well this was so fun kate awesome. ara john thank you thank so you. much thank for joining so us thanks for, for playing us. our game awesome thank you and that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on saltandspine.com. There you'll find recipes from Lavash for Jingalov hats and marinated trout. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And of course, you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com backslash saltandspine. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan Stewart, and our producer, Madeline Forbes. Salt and Spine's kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. 